to Luke, first chapter of Luke, and uh, we're going to begin down in verse 39. Last week, we talked about the Annunciation, that is, the visit of Gabriel to first, and that's why this was so poignant, this little Facebook thing, the visit of Gabriel to Mary, and then the visit of Gabriel to Joseph, and all that, you know, was involved with that. This this week, we're going to look at the next thing that happened. We have four weeks of Christmas. Last week was number one, then uh, today's number two, and then two more weeks, and then Christmas will be upon us. So allow me to read from the New King James. You could put the King James Version up there. It'll be pretty close, Dave. Uh, Luke chapter 1 and verse 39, but I believe the Bible I've got with me today is the New King James Version. Uh, okay. Just a second, though, before I start reading, I want to make sure that you understand what, what happened was in, in our in context, the angel just did leave Gabriel. In context, the, Abel, the angel just did tell Mary, this is what's going to happen. You are going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and uh, you go with that. And she said... Uh, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, verse 38, let it be done to me according to your word, and the angel left her. So, uh, and we talked last week how that was a tough challenge for her. We're going to mention that again a little bit this week. But So, verse 39, so the 38 said, and the angel left her, 39, Mary got up, arose in those days, and went into the hill country with haste. To a city of Judah. Pause. So she didn't linger after the angel told her there was a super special circumstance in her life, namely that she would become pregnant by God with a holy child. She didn't linger at home after that announcement. With haste, she got up and you might say fled to the hill country. She ran to the hills. Okay. And there, verse 40, she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, pause, who, by the way, was her aunt and uncle. John, not John the beloved, the apostle, but John the Baptist, was Jesus' first cousin. Okay. She went to her aunt's house, Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leapt in her womb, Elizabeth's womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Mary. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. She continued to talk to Mary. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Maybe Mary was 
overwhelmed at the thought of being pregnant in her, becoming and staying and starting to show or whatever. Maybe she was just struggling processing the news. I'm, I'm making this number up. She could be 14, 15, 16, as young as 13, uh, just a kid. Maybe she was struggling with this news. Oh, my goodness. I'm pregnant. Totally unprepared for this, unplanned for this. She wasn't married yet. She was betrothed. She was engaged, super engaged, you could call it, because betrothal in those days was a little more than our engagement. And so, but she wasn't married, so she wasn't supposed to be having relations. And so there was going to be a lot of splaining to do when she started to have her little, what they call today, the little baby bump going on. So she did what she knew she could do. She took off. She ran for the hills. She went to her auntie's house, perhaps a favorite aunt of hers, someone who knew who she knew she could trust. And upon greeting Mary, Elizabeth, by the way, who was a priest's wife, let, let me say it this way, a preacher's wife, preacher's family, because that resonates with us a little better than a priest's wife. So she was preacher family, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And she correctly prophesied, Elizabeth did in verse 42, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, they didn't have telephones or cell phones or internet or anything. So Elizabeth really had no way of knowing what was going on literally in Mary's life. And yet Mary, who had it in high gear all the way up to the hills, we don't know how far away it was. Let's just say it was a full day of, of hurrying to get to the hills. And as soon as she got into the house, Elizabeth didn't know exactly what was going on, but she knew something special was going on with Mary. And she said, blessed is the fruit of your womb. That's a weird thing to say. Can you imagine coming to my house and I said to you, any one of you, well, ladies, and, and, and the first thing out of my or Wanda's mouth is, blessed is the fruit of your womb. I'd be like, Okay, you know, what does this mean? You know, uh, so for Mary to already have, for Elizabeth to already have knowledge that something was going on with Mary, I'm sure was comforting uh, for Mary. You see, Elizabeth's own pregnancy was somewhat miraculous. For six months prior, uh, her husband, Zechariah, was serving duty in the temple, burning incense in the temple, and there he was told that he was going to have a baby, even in his old age, kind of like Abraham and Sarah. And he was kind of like awestruck by that. You might even remember he couldn't even speak about it while he was uh, uh, processing through the news. And so now Elizabeth's six-month-old fetus, fetus leapt in her womb when Mary came into the room. Today, I, uh, I'd like us to look at verse 45 and see Elizabeth's last recorded words before Mary's, what's called Mary's song, the Magnificat, where she magnifies the Lord for everything that he's doing into her, uh, doing in her life. But before that, verse 45, look at it with me, verse 45, blessed is she, Elizabeth talking, blessed is she who believed for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her. Uh, by the Lord. 
Today, I want us to let those words sink in. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her by the Lord. Before I ask us to uh, think about what that means to us, let's think about what it meant to Mary. What did those words mean to Mary? Please pay close attention because I'm bashful and I don't want to be too graphic. So you pay close attention and I won't have to be graphic and my bashfulness will be assuaged. Okay? So without a doubt, when Jesus was born, he was a full-term, normal nine-month baby. Amen? So he you know, went just like every other baby. He wasn't, uh, when the Holy Spirit uh, moved in Mary's life and she became pregnant by God, uh, he didn't start her off with an eight-month-old baby, uh, you know, fetus. So she did, did. Okay. So our text suggests that Mary fled to the hills right away after Gabriel left. This is actually an important part of where I'm going to go with today's sermon. So please track me and don't make me draw pictures. So it, our text suggests that Mary fled to the hill country right away after Gabriel left. So in terms of signs, that the classic signs that we sometimes look for and see when we're actually pregnant, or perhaps the absence of a sign, to first draw attention to the fact that we might actually uh, be pregnant, there hadn't been enough time transpired since Gabriel uh, told her that the Holy Spirit was going to impregnate her, there haven't been enough time yet for her to have physical indications that what Gabriel told her was actually going to come to pass. Because she left immediately. And again, don't make me draw pictures, but usually it's a few weeks and then there's this first little absence of a sign that something may be going on pregnancy Wise. And I think in every way other than conception, Jesus in her womb was a normal pregnancy. No signs. Yet verse 42 in our text implies that there was already, albeit a teeny tiny bean-sized Jesus in Mary's womb. However, a, I guess it's not even bean-sized yet. Just a little form of life in Mary's womb. Oh, rice, maybe a speck of rice would be more like it instead of a bean. The Holy Spirit had already done his work in her, already begun the work of conception in her life. And it seems like straightway she ran. But a little, probably smaller than a speck of, light, a speck of rice in, in her womb. And she runs, and that little speck of divine life in Mary's womb was sufficient that when she entered the house, when she got to Elizabeth's house, probably only a day or two or three or four, less than a week, pregnant, no opportunity yet to see any other physical signs. Certainly not a baby bump when, you're, uh, when your fetus is less than a, a grain of rice big. Certainly haven't missed anything off the calendar that you're normally, you're normally visited with. She ran there, and that little teeny rice-sized Jesus in her womb was sufficient for John the Baptist, now six months old in the womb, now the size of a grapefruit or whatever, six months. Don't correct me later. You can just give me a little license to be wrong here. 
But you know, this grapefruit-sized baby in her womb. Woo! He sensed the presence of the divine in, in Mary's life. And, and Elizabeth says, Woo! My baby left. Blessed be the fruit of your womb. Blessed be the fruit of your womb. Confirming to Mary that, wow, this is a relief. I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, clearly Elizabeth already is starting to get it. Because otherwise it would have been an awkward couple of weeks, or I should say three months, at Mary's, at Elizabeth's house if Mary was sort of, come on, I mean, if Elizabeth was sort of, come on, Mary, tell me again how this supposedly happened. But, but, but Elizabeth knew. And our verse 45 reveals that it was not by sight, it was not by experience, and certainly not by likelihood. That's an important uh, element of today's message, so I need to repeat, repeat it. It was not by sight, not by evidence, and certainly not by likelihood that Mary processed the words from the Lord spoken to her by Gabriel. I explain. When I say it's not by likelihood that she processed the words, when Gabriel said to her what he said to her, you know, you're going to have a baby from the Holy Spirit. That's not likely in your life that you're going to have a baby from the Holy Spirit. Indeed, Nothing like that had ever happened before in human history. So statistically, it's most unlikely that you're going to become pregnant by God. And yet Mary is holding on to those words. She believed the word of the Lord. Statistically, nobody knew better than her that she could not become pregnant. Track me. She knew that there's no way, again, don't make me draw pictures here, do any more explaining, we're on bashful thin ice. She knew there was no way she could be pregnant. The way every other woman had ever gotten pregnant before in human history. She knew that. Let that sink in. She knew that there's no way she could be pregnant. Nobody else, not even Joseph, because you know there's a bunch of men in the world. Nobody else knew, like Mary knew, that she could not be pregnant. Everybody else, when they considered the situation, had to believe Mary or not believe Mary. Even Joseph, though he was visited by Gabriel himself, still had to sort of, he probably had to tell him, oh, Gabriel did come. I did have that experience with, you know, it's hard to believe. But she believed the word of the Lord. Statistically, nobody knew better than she did that she could not be pregnant the normal way. And, and as we said, there wasn't time yet for any physical confirmations of her pregnancy. Look at verse 45. Yet she believed the Lord. Thank you. Yeah, you just leave it up there. Yet she believed the Lord. Let me ask you, uh, what statistical likelihood, what is the statistical likelihood of an immaculate conception? It only, as far as I know, it only happened once in all of human history. So the statistical likelihood is very low. I'd say pretty near zero. And we've wandered into the crux of today's message, the, what I want to give you today. The Lord, A, 
embraces, I dare say, loves low or zero odds. The Lord's not scaredy pants of statistical low odds. And B, he loves it when people take him at his word during statistical unlikelihoods. He loved it when Mary said, may it be unto me your bondservant according to your word. He loved it when Mary believed in her heart the word of Gabriel, which came from the Lord. Gabriel's just the messenger. Gabriel didn't make it, didn't wake up one day and say, you know, I'm going to go to... The Lord sent Gabriel with this message. Tell her she's going to con uh, conceive of something very special uh, from me and uh, ask her to believe that. She believed it. And so not only did the Lord, does the Lord rise to the occasion when statistical likelihoods are very small, but he also loves it when people trust him during times of statistical unlikelihood. Here's a premise I discovered some years ago, and, and uh, I've talked a lot about it on my own journey this year. I've, I've got this uh, blog thing on the computer uh, about some of the stuff we've been going through, and so it's probably not the first time you've heard me say it if you've been following that blog, but it's a, it's a premise I discovered some time ago. Search the Bible and see if I've missed something. God does not do what people can do. My most common example is a farmer. And so a farmer can't sit in his living room and then pray hard to God, reminding God that seed needs to be purchased down at the seed store. And that the farmer should remind God that the seed should be purchased and brought up to the barn. Good luck with that. How many think that God would supernaturally, because you prayed a prayer of faith, that God would run down to the seed store, uh, carry up 200 pounds of corn seed, and carry them out and put them in your barn? Why doesn't he do that? I'll tell you why he doesn't do that. Because that's what you're supposed to do. Anything man can do, God expects man to do. The seed is now in your barn. Do you think it's cool to pray, oh, Lord, there's 200 pounds of seed in my, car, in my barn, and there's 60 acres of land out there? It needs to be planted, Lord. This weekend looks good, Lord. You should probably put it in furrows, you know. I don't know anything about farming. You know, 16 inches apart. That corn seed is not going to be miraculously planted. I mean, this just in. It's not going to happen. You can get Billy Graham to hold hands with you and pray in tongues. It's not going to happen, children. That seed is going to rot in your barn before it gets supernaturally planted. And now you finally plant it because you got impatient and the weeds are growing or whatever. I, don't, I, you know, I have no idea what I'm talking about because I'm not a farmer guy. And so, but I presume weeds grow, and I don't know if you're supposed to pull them or not, but it'd be inappropriate to tell the Lord that there's weeds out there and that he needs to, you know, do whatever you do there, you know. God's not going to do it. Why? Because you've got two hands and you've got two feet. And that's something that you can do. I think I'm making my point. Now, how about this one? How about let's turn the clock of time back 300 years and you're the farmer, 
and there's a dry spell coming through, and your little corn stalks this tall look like they're turning yellow and brown. They got that death tinge going to them. Is this an appropriate prayer? Father God, the corn that I've planted in faith, thank you, God, for the signs of life that you've shot up these little corns. And, 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 and Lord, this is my livelihood. This is, this is what I'm going to eat this year. This is what I'm going to sell and trade for cloth for clothes and, and what I'm going to be able to put in the offering plate at church, Lord. And, and I need your help. I, I need a sweet rain to fall. Is that a legitimate prayer? Your head should be going this way. Yeah, that's a legitimate prayer because you cannot make it rain. It's something only God can do is make it rain. And so this is a good prayer. And God loves it when people say, I want to trust you, Lord, for something that is impossible for man, but it's not impossible for you. The Lord loves it when we trust him in impossible situations. That's a good prayer. Now the corn's grown up and you can't sit in your living room. I think I beat this horse pretty dead. You cannot sit in your living room, hold hands with Billy Graham, and pray that the Lord harvests the corn and brings it in. You can't do it. He wants you to go get the corn, because you can. Okay. Hold on to that little uh, analogy right there. I discovered years ago that throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, you're not going to find one place, and I wish to be corrected if you can think of a place. The whole Bible... All of it. Show me a place where God came down and did something man could have done. God doesn't do that stuff. God shows up and does what man can't do. That's his job. That's his modus operandi. That's the way he works. He does the impossible. He loves, he thrives in statistical unlikelihoods. That's where God gets the, that's what he gets to do when he gets up in the morning. Poetically speaking, I know he's always up. He looks for those things that are impossible, and then he looks for those people that are trusting him regarding the things that are impossible, and then he rubs his hands together, and he says, well, let's get going then. If these people are trusting me to do something that's impossible for them, it's, that's my turn to get going. Think about Gideon in Judges chapter 7. The Midianites were about to do battle on him. It was a bad scene for Israel. And uh, Gideon, uh, you know, is praying, and he does the fleece, the wet fur, the dry fur. And um, so Midian is told by God to gather together the troops to fight the Midianites. 32,000 guys showed up. And you know what the Lord said? He said... Uh, Verse 3 of uh, chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, you can just trust me or jot it down or listen to the tape later and double check me. Verse 3 of Judges chapter 7, the Lord said, tell the scaredy cats to go home. 22,000 people went home. As an aside, I think I would have been one of the 22,000. Just as an aside, I'm not a brave warrior. If someone's going to die maybe, I'm about praying for them from the home front. I don't like the idea of going to die on the battlefield. 22,000 other people uh, left and, and, and went home too. Down in uh, verse 7, the Lord was not happy that there was still uh, uh, 22,000 left. I mean, 10,000 people left. So in verse 7, the Lord sent 9,700 of those 10,000 left 
almost all of them, he sent them home because of the way they drank water. And he kept 300. Now you may put up there, oh, you're tracking me, good man. Put up verse 2 there, brother. Uh, Verse 2 explains the reasoning of God. Look at this. And and allow it, in the context of this message, allow verse 2 to speak to you a little bit. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people that are with you are too many. He's talking about the 32,000. The Lord told Gideon, you got too many guys. You got too many for me to give you the Midianites into your hands. Because Israel might vaunt themselves against me saying, we did it ourselves. And the Lord wanted to do it miraculously. So he intentionally watched this. He in, the Lord architecturally designed a situation where it would be statistically impossible for the people to win so that he could show his own strong right hand. He whittled the army down from 32,000 to 300 people. He armed them with, with torches and pots. And with that and, and the Lord's own uh, work, they overthrew the, the Midianite army. The Bible is chock full of God stepping in during statistically impossible situations. I could preach three hours on this. I'll abbreviate just a few to to get you uh, thinking how I think. Think about Samson with a jawbone of a donkey, a thousand guys. He couldn't do that alone. The Holy Spirit came upon him. A thousand guys, he slew them. Seven times heated furnace. It wasn't just one click up, it was seven times. The guys who throw these three Hebrew boys in, the guys who carried them up there to throw them in, die. God loved the statistical unlikelihood that those young men would live. They said, our Lord is able to deliver us, Nebuchadnezzar, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to serve you. And the Lord loved their language. He loved their attitude. And when they were thrown in, uh, not even a hair on their head was singed. Indeed, and when Nebuchadnezzar looked in to the seven times overheated fire and physically, absolutely, talk about statistical unlikelihoods, impossible for them to be safe through that. The guys that threw them in died. Nebuchadnezzar said, didn't we throw three in? Is there four? in there. Who's in there with them? I'll tell you who's in there with them. The Lord was in there with them. Uh, I got no quirky remark about that, just that the Lord was with them in their hour of great need and that statistical unlikelihood he delivered. Think about the time where it hadn't rained for some three, three and a half years, and now they were meeting on top of Mount Carmel. The money that had to be paid for, I want to say, 12 barrels. I think they did four barrels each time. You know, Elijah didn't want to leave anything to the imagination uh, about, oh, well, maybe the dry tinder. You know, it's dry times. It hasn't rained. The Lord said, soak the altar. They poured four barrels of expensive water on the altar. The Lord said, soak it again. Get more barrels of water. Soak it again. Stuff's dripping with water. Soak it one more time. The Bible teaches that it was so soaked that even the trench around the altar was full of water. See, God was intentionally creating an absolutely impossible 
situation. There's no way that you could say that, well, it was just so dry, you know, it hadn't rained, and, you know, uh, lightning nearby, a little spark of static up the... No, it was soaked so that the trenches were full. God designed it deliberately so that it was statistically impossible, and then he showed up and burned the whole thing, including the water in that little trench. 5,000 people had shown up to hear Jesus preach. Jesus said, we've got to give them something to eat. Where are we going to go get them something to eat, Lord? I think it was Philip who said, where are we going to go get them something to eat, Lord? Jesus figured it out. All we've got, all we could conjure up was his little loaves and these couple fish and a little lunch pail. You see? Perfect opportunity because it's statistically ridiculous to think that you could feed 5,000 people with a boy's lunch pail this is a perfect opportunity for God to show up. If they had three semi-trailer trucks full of MREs, I know I'm mixing you know, genres of time, but if they had three trailer trucks of MREs parked down where he had been teaching, I want to suggest to you that God would not have done a miracle, he would have said, open up the, tra the trailer trucks and start handing out the MREs. There were no MREs. There was a couple loaves of fish and a, a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. And so God showed up and took care of it. I think about the lady that had been so sick so long. It says that she spent all the money she had on every treatment conceivable for what ailed her. Clearly, it was impossible for man to help this lady out with all the tricks and all the gadgets and all the procedures that man had. It kind of like Humpty Dumpty a little bit. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put her back together again. She was hopeless, racked with pain, struggling to survive. An impossible situation. Was this not a perfect opportunity because the statistical likelihood was so low that she would be able to be helped? This brings joy to her situation. Why, Cliff, does it bring joy to her situation? Because it's a ripe situation for God to show up and supernaturally deliver, you see. God is not afraid, not a wink, of an impossible situation. Indeed, I'm telling the secrets of heaven right now, indeed, he is in the standby mode, anxious for an impossible situation where those that dare believe in him can see the miraculous happen. He loves to see impossible situations, and then he watches. Okay, there's an impossible situation. I wonder if I'm going to have a believer come along and trust me and call on me and believe in me that this impossible situation can be met. And by goodness, when it is, when that happens, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do it. Three Hebrew boys, Mount Carmel, Gideon, 5,000 hungry people, lady that spent everything she had. I'm going to show up. I don't care about statistics. I love it when the statistics are against us. So last night we visited uh, Addison and Alyssa's church. They had a little Hanukkah get-together, kind of fun. Uh, learn a little bit more about Hanukkah. Yeah. There's a fellow there that whenever I visit, 
Uh, he's one of the sort of lay leaders. He plays the trumpet in their little brass band they've got. How you feeling, Pastor Cliff? He knows our journey. How you feeling? I said, you know, I'm feeling great. He says, you look great. I said, well, thank you. That's encouraging, but I feel great too, and I'm really trusting the Lord. He says, good. He says, I got to tell you something. And I told Wanda last night on the way home, I got to revisit him and get names. Because I don't like it just when there's urban legend-like stories. I like it when there's a name. But I assure you that this story is true because this is a man of integrity. Because he lives in Crestview and he's born again. <laughs> no. But, but he is, and he does. He says, did you hear about Pastor, I'll just call him Pastor Jones, and this is the name I want to get, in, in Destin? I said, no. He said, well, you know, besides going to this church, I also go to such and such a church in Destin. And he said, um, Pastor Jones in Destin, uh, Two weeks ago, was told by his doctors he was having problems. Stage four. There's not a stage five. Well, there is. It's a very peaceful stage. Stage four melanoma. Catastrophic news. What can be done? Almost nothing. Stage four, it's, you know, go do what you've got to do with your family, make preparations because... You're in stage four land. So uh, this pastor, and I will bring you his name. It is a true story, I assure you, and it is fresh fish. I mean, it's just happened within the last month. All this happened within the last 30 days. So this pastor, uh, unnerved about this news, all makes sense, given his symptoms, given his sickness, now the diagnosis did the only thing he knew to do. Called together all his pastor friends from Destin. And the pastor friends got together, and this fellow who was telling the story was there at the prayer meeting also. He's a kind of a lay leader guy, like I said. So he was at the prayer meeting, and he said, he told me every detail. He said, I, I, I was praying, uh, and I was praying for brother so-and-so, whom he named by name, and he had his hands on Pastor Jones. And he, said, and, and, and he says, usually when you get a bunch of pastors together to pray, it's a praying competition, long, lofty prayers. He said, you know, I said, I know exactly what you're talking about. He said, it wasn't like that. He said, grown men crying, agonizing with these short prayers, just calling out to God, please, God, you see the situation. We're going to call on your name. We're going to trust you. And he said, all at once, starting with Pastor Jones, there was a, a shaking that began to go. And he said, I noticed it. And then the guy I was touching on began to shake. And he said, it never happened to me before. And then I began to shake. And I could just feel uh, the place being shaken, just like it talks about in Acts chapter 4. And, and, and we prayed and, and were shaken by God as the Holy Spirit <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> visited us there at the prayer meeting. It was the day before he had to go out to uh, MD Anderson in Houston, one of the one of the Cadillac premier cancer centers in the country, in the world. And so they prayed, and they believed God in the face of this impossible situation. And this pastor, whose name I will bring to you, uh, went to MD Anderson straightway, just like Mary went straightway after hearing the news. She went straightway to Elizabeth's house. This pastor went straightway out to MD Anderson. And MD, MD Anderson ran a couple days' tests all over him, and said, why are you here? You haven't a shred of cancer anywhere in your body. You're completely well. You don't need to be here. You don't have any cancer. You know, almost like stop wasting our time. 
completely well. It's a fresh fish story from right down the street. Just happened, and it happened nearby. Didn't happen in some obscure place on the backside of Utah somewhere about, well, I wonder if somebody's cousin's friend is really telling the story. It's a true story. An impossible situation. And God didn't shrink back. God didn't say, pacing the floorboards of heaven, oh my goodness, stage four. Ooh, this, is gonna, this would be really big. I wonder if I could do anything about it. God didn't do that. Got to stage four. All right. Wonder if they're going to call on me. There they are. They're calling on me. All right. Impossible situation. They're calling on me. What do you say I show up? And he showed up and uh, worked his mighty work. I'm so impressed with Mary. Without any indication that what the Lord said was truly coming to pass, she didn't yet have, again, don't make me go to bashful land here, she didn't yet have any physical indications or lack thereof to begin to realize that what the Lord said may actually be happening to her. She believed, yet she believed that it would come to pass. I'm impressed with that. Okay, that's Mary. I gave you some examples from the Old Testament. Hebrew children, Gideon, Mount Carmel. Gave you some from the New Testament, 5,000. Lady spending everything she had on. I gave you an example from down the street. Today's not just a history lesson. It's a Psalm uh, 46, verse 1. Psalm 46, verse 1 lesson. That verse teaches, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in a time of trouble. Each of us has, in the past, is, right now, or will face a statistical impossibility in our life. You're not immune from statistical impossibilities. It will visit you. Or maybe it already has. So this message uh, comes to us. Don't you dare despair. Now here's the message in a little teeny bucket. The whole message, now we're going to condense it. Something you can carry home with you in this little pail. The whole message. Don't you despair when the odds are teeny. See, the devil wants, I'll just give you a peek into the devil's strategy book. The devil wants to discourage you. How does he do it? By giving you severely unlikely uh, severely unlikely situations that there'll be any recovery, any, any fix to the problem. And so we get intimidated because the chances are one in a million. This guy down the street, I called Pastor Jones. His doctor, if he had to say, if he had to ask the doctor, don't know if he did or didn't. If he had a doctor had to ask the doctor, well, what does this mean? What are my chances? I bet you the doctor would have said something like this. We don't even talk about chances with stage B. There aren't chances. So what the devil does with that is the devil says, don't you see it's impossible? Don't you see 
um, Elijah, there's no way you're going to get fire from heaven. Now what are you doing? You're covering it with water. How ridiculous. It's never going to burn. Don't you see? There's 5,000 people out there. All you've got is a little boy's bucket. What are you smoking? Are you crazy? This is a hopeless situation. Quick, send them all home. If they faint, they faint. Jesus knew better. No, I don't care if it's impossible. I don't care if it's improbable. I don't care what you think about statistical likelihoods. Regardless of what the world tells you, regardless of what the de- how the devil uh, helps you process through that, don't you despair. Indeed, today's message is this. Be of good cheer when it's impossible. <clears throat> You can't be of good cheer when there's 60 acres of corn to be planted. There's only one thing that's going to separate you from that situation, from that field being needed to be planted and that field being planted. And you know what it is? Hard work. By you. It's the only thing that separates that field from being planted and the way it is now. Be of good cheer. When that situation is impossible, That's the only time God is going to show up. He's not going to show up if it's possible. He says, if it's possible, just go ahead and do what you do. If it's possible, plant it yourself. If it's possible, reap it yourself. But when it's impossible, you you call on my name. So don't you despair when the situation is uh, unreasonably, statistically unlikely. You rejoice. You say, Pastor Cliff, how can I rejoice if it's so unlikely? You rejoice because that's the time that God will kick in. Don't despair. Finally, you have the ingredients necessary for a mighty move of God. Uh, God is uh, most unlikely to move if the situation isn't severe. If it's 30,000 troops against 30,000 troops, Gideon, he's not going to do it. He's going to let them just fight. I think in the story, the pots and the torches, I don't think any of those guys died. Let me tell you something. Track me here for just a second. If they had fought 30,000 against 30,000, there'd have been a whole lot of carnage going on. Instead, God just let the scaredy cats that probably might would have died, he he just let them go. When odds are ridiculous, be of good cheer. Join Mary. She had no outward reason to know, think, or believe that she would actually become pregnant without normal relations with a man. And yet she believed. Verse 45, 145. Yet she believed, and the word of the Lord was fulfilled in her life. I close with this thought. What huge challenges are you facing today? Can you allow yourself to truly believe that there's absolutely no mountain too big for God to move? Or has the devil convinced you that this mountain, mm, it's just too big? Don't even bother praying about it because the mountain is too big. That's the devil's game. The devil's game is to get you convinced that this is absolutely impossible. Cliff's game this morning is to remind you that from Scripture, that's the only time God shows up. Be of good cheer when it's impossible. This is when God shows up. Don't rejoice when it's a little, hey, if it's a little, my father was in building. And some days he'd have like uh, 20 yards of crushed stone delivered to the house. Guess who moved it? Shovel full by shovel full, wheelbarrow full by wheel. And I would look at that big pot, you know, 20 yards. 
to about as tall as the bottom of that speaker and going out in that whole corner hall here. And I, I'm, a, I'm a 15-year-old kid. I'm looking at that pond. Oh, the only way that's going to get to the cellar of this house that he's building is right here. And it's daunting. But I got to do it. I can't pray about that. I can do it. I got to do it. But when it's an impossible situation, when, when the situation is absolutely so huge that there's no way I could move it, it's actually easier for me than when it's possible. Because when it's possible, I gotta get the, get the wheelbarrow going. When it's impossible, I get the knees going. I get the heart going. I get to believing and I get to praying. Uh, don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Don't imagine dire consequences. Those, I promise you, are the tricks of the enemy. Be of good cheer, my friend, when things look impossible. For there we walk where God enjoys showing up. Mary did it. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> we're just people here, and we're prone to being nervous. We're prone to getting scared, and the enemy knows it. And he plays on those emotions uh, to really sink our ships. I pray for us as a group, oh God. I pray that maybe you'll not only uh, uh, affect our attitudes with this message, but there will come a day where we will be able to bring the reality of this message to a group. Maybe it's a family group. Maybe it's another group of Christians or whatever. We'll be able to bring this message into an environment where there's utter despair because the odds are just so low. Help us to remember, oh God, when the odds are low, when the odds are essentially zilch. Look up, for our redemption is near. You are in the wings waiting now just to find one person that would trust you, that would call on your name. Help us, oh God, to be people that uh, know to ask you and then, and then have the courage to believe that you will meet those needs. We give you honor and glory and praise for this. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen.